Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. If you have your Bibles, open up Colossians 3, 20 to 21 is where we're going to focus at this morning because just like last week we talked that marriage is absolutely under attack. The biblical concept of marriage is under attack, and that's why a whole focus there. And then this morning, we're going to talk about children and fathers, because I believe the family unit, the biblical understanding and definition of the family unit is also under attack. And so if you're sitting next to your kids, uh, definitely elbow them. Don't elbow your wife like you did last week. Just elbow your kids and be like, hey, the holy man's talking to you right now. So no, Colossians 3, starting... Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything. Amen, that parents right there. Amen, right? Children, obey your parents in everything. Let me pause, give them a glare real quick. You got a few of them here, give them that glare. Like you reading the word of God here. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. For this pleases the Lord. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Children, obey your parents. That word obey is not the same that you would just a couple verses before when we're talking about wives, submit to your husbands. There's some uh, translations of the Bible that would use the same one, and that's in a negative context to the women. And so, uh, wives, definitely you are not to obey your husband. It's a submit, and we talked about that last week, under God's arrangements. But there is an arrangement that God has even for the family unit and understanding what is that for kids. And he does say a stronger word for children, saying, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. I always loved in student ministry, we'd have parents or uh, students that would ask questions about their own parents. So parents didn't have to tell me what was going on in their life. You just take some prayer requests from both of fifth graders. Yeah, they'll tell you exactly what's going on at home. But I would always have students ask, you know, what if, what if my parents want me to do something that disobeys God's law? And I said, okay, what are your parents asking you to do? Oh, no, I don't know. I'm just trying to find a loophole to get around that. And I thought, wow, here we go. We're trying to find loopholes around obeying our parents. This is the depravity that we live in. But the word obey, what's unique about it is it's obey what is heard. It is acting under the authority of one speaking. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. But to obey what is heard. And this pleases the Lord. Like the goal for us as parents, the goal for our children, and hopefully for you kiddos, the goal, and when I say kiddos, I'm meaning all, if you live under your parents' household, you're still a kiddo. I don't care if you're 40. If you live under your parents' household, obey your parents. If you do not live under, that's the difference right there. If a dollar of your parents' money goes towards you, let it be a cell phone bill, I don't care what it is, obey your father and mother, right? So obey what is heard, the authority of one speaking, because this pleases the Lord. The goal is that we as kids should want to please the Lord. They're, they're never too young to challenge, hey, your life right now as a, I have a seven-year-old, that's my youngest right now. Her, my goal, her goal as a seven-year-old, I want her to honor and please the Lord with her life. Well, what does that look like? Well, we still play with Barbies and little people, and we were trying to shoot hoops last night. She could barely get the basketball to the eight-foot rim. We had to lower it, and, but I still want her life 
to please the Lord, and a main way for that is to obey her parents. And even John, in Gospel of John, talks about, records Jesus saying the same thing about his father, John 8, 29. Jesus says, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him, his father. And so even Jesus had the same heart. And so if Jesus loves his father through obedience, are we better children than Jesus? To think, oh, I don't need to obey my parents. I mean, that's good for Jesus that he, he obeyed his heavenly father. But, you know, like, have you met my parents? Like, and I get that sometimes. Has anybody ever heard that as a parent or if any of us as adults, now kids or even teenagers, have you ever had that mentality? I know I'm smarter than my parents. If your parent is next to you, don't raise your hand, okay? But inside, I have, you can feel that. I've had students tell me that, like, I'm just smarter than my parents. You should see them with an iPhone. They look like a gorilla. They have no idea what's going on, which is true. But even Jesus had that. So hold your spot there in Colossians and go to Luke 2. Right before Luke 2.52, which is kind of the theme verse for us with Operation Christmas Child, this is an interaction with Jesus and his earthly parents. Because you're probably thinking, well, yeah, Nick, the John 8 verse and Jesus obeying his heavenly father, Jesus was perfect and it's his heavenly father, of course he's going to obey him. But what about his earthly parents? What about his mother, Mary, and his dad, Joseph? How did he respond to them? And I love these verses. And parents, if your kids ever say something to the effect that they think that they are smarter than you, just take them to Scripture. Luke 2, start in verse 49. If you remember, this is when Jesus is about 12. He hangs out in the temple instead of going back home with his parents. And they leave him there for a day. They travel back a day and then find him in the temple. And they're having this conversation. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. You ever lose your kids at Walmart? Oh, man. One of the most glorious feelings ever. I mean, no, scariest. No, Jesus. And he said to them, this is Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But listen to verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. That Jesus is bringing a depth of spirituality that they cannot understand. That the smartest kid, and, or the smartest person in this little one, two, three of mom, dad, and kid is Jesus in this moment. They didn't even understand him and what he's saying. And he went down with them and he came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. That Jesus knew even I believe at that age of 12, that I am God's son, that I am the son of man. He had an understanding in that, even tried to explain that to his parents, and they didn't understand. And he didn't use that as a platform to tell them, hey, you don't even know better, like, I'm the son of God. But he submitted to his parents. So even Jesus obeyed, even though he was smarter than them. So every time my kids try to give me that line of that they're smarter than them or they allude to it, so is Jesus. And Jesus still obeyed his parents. And a lot of times when we have rules and regulations for our kids, kids, don't we ask this question sometimes? But why? But why? I think that's the most famous question that I'm getting now as a teenager, uh, having teenagers laying down the rules, the laws of the land of what it means to live in the Pierce household, and now I have to justify the rules. But why is that? Everybody else gets to, why do I? Da, da, da. We have those conversations. And I'm not asking for blind obedience. I don't think that's the goal in our parenting. 
Uh, the whole do as I say, not as I do, not a, not a good line, not a good parenting philosophy, but we do have questions, understanding like, well, but why is that? And I'm not asking for a blind obedience, but a relational obedience. A lot of times when I'm asked that question from my kids, I'll say, am I your dad? Yeah. Do you know that I love you? Yes. Can you trust me? Eh. I said, I know, I get that. I'm a shady looking character. But do you know that my heart, I have the best interest for you, that anything that I do, I am for you. I'm not trying to squash your dreams and your life, that I'm actually trying to platform and set you up for the most success in life. Can you, can you trust that that is my heart as a father? Because again, a lot of times we want understanding, but even in being a kid, understanding the rules of our father and mother, we don't sometimes get understanding, but we need to obey and trust. Because if we as children struggle with the idea of the rules and the regulations and the law of the land that our parents put down on us, there's also another father that we will struggle with trying to understand why his standards are the way they are. And so this, children, listen to me. If you live in under your parents' household, listen to me. The rules that your parents are providing for you Take your safety, take I mean, your best interest, all that. Put that to the side. The other thing that they are trying to train you to do is to obey another father. Because if you can obey your earthly father, there's hope that you'll obey your heavenly father. Because again, God will give us rules and regulations and standards of what does it mean to follow him. And we will ask, we will ask ourselves questions, but why? why? Why does God want me to do this? Why is this so important to him? And we'll lack understanding at times. But does he love us? Can we trust him? Does he have our best interest at heart? Again, understanding will come and go sometimes, but we are called to trust and obey. And so let me lean into the parents just a little bit before we get to the fathers. If we love our children, you know, talking about obedience, if we love our children so much as to not require obedience, we really don't love our kids. And there is kind of a movement uh, with uh, parents in our culture. Uh, the, uh, we, it even kind of hits kind of close to home in some of our family that we don't tell our kids no. We don't use that word. And I'm not trying to attack that parenting philosophy because I still think, you know, it is good to discipline a child. But you see so much where I, I don't want to be a parent. I just want to be their friend, especially when they're teenagers. That can be a real struggle. I just want to be their friend. I don't want to push them too much. I don't want to tick them off. You know, I don't want to force anything about them. To which I say, like, you force them to go to school. You force them to eat. You force them to go to, they sign up for basketball or football and they have practices. You force them to go to that. Like, why wouldn't you want to politely force them to be a part of church? And not just being a part of church, I'm talking about discipleship in the home. Because the word of God cuts regardless of how it is. The word of God is sharper than two, any two-edged sword. So if you accidentally cut yourself or intentionally cut yourself, the word of God is going to cut. And there were times that I was forced to be a part of church with my grandparents. I was forced to, we would read the daily bread every morning at breakfast by my grandma, and she would ask us, so what do you think about that? I'm glad it's over. I, I mean, I'm going to be honest. My breakfast is done. I'm ready to go. 
But what's crazy is now as a man following the Lord of my own faith, guess what comes back? Guess what comes back into remembrance for me? Verses my grandparents asked me to memorize and then they would pay for me to go to camp. Conversations that we would have around the breakfast table. Little nuggets of wisdom that I never thought I would remember. Definitely that's the Holy Spirit bringing back to remembrance the word of God in my life. Allow the word of God to cut in their lives. But they have to be exposed to it. To be cut by it. But if we love our children so much that we're not going to require obedience, we really don't love them. Proverbs 3.11 and it's restated in Hebrews 12 talks about how God disciplines those that he loves. God does that. If God loves you, he is going to discipline you. I've said that multiple times to my kids. I'm disciplining you because I love you. I'm not disciplining you because I don't love you. If I don't love you, you know the easiest way to show your kids that you do not love them? Give them everything that they ask for. Is that not what God does in Romans 1? That God gave them up to their depravity? Gave them up to a depraved mind. Give them everything that they want. If you really want to ruin a child's life, just give them everything. So God loves his kids through discipline. Are we better parents than the Lord? Is this not the arrangement that God has for us? That discipline does matter. And when we're talking about discipline, going back to that word obey. Obey what is heard, acting under the authority of one speaking. Meaning you have to talk to your kids. A lot of times we can have a very, um, oh, I'm going to blank on the word I wanted to use. We can have this frame of mind thinking, oh, yeah, my, my kids love God. Oh, yeah, my kids, they know the rules and they're going to follow that. Oh, my kid's not doing those things that all the other kids are doing in the world and that we read the stats. That's, that's not happening in our household. Do you know that for sure? You know that for sure? And a lot of parents are like, oh, I don't want to go through their phone. That's their private world. That's their business. That's the worst thing you could ever do. It's like giving your kid a loaded gun and never teaching them how to use it. You would know. My son is 17 and we still go through his phone. Now, again, we don't have to see eye to eye on this, but we still go through his phone. We still read what's going on. Why? Because I love him more than the awkwardness of having a conversation with him about something that could be concerning. There was multiple times that I want to lean into my son's life. I want to lean into my daughter's life. That I want them to learn about the world from me, not from friends or the bus stop or uh, the amount of things that I learned on the school bus just going to school yeah I don't want that to be the educating of my kids whatsoever and so we're going to lean into that but you might be thinking but I don't know how to talk to my teenager and I'm going to I'm just going to tell you right now and I know there's a few teenagers in there they're weird and awkward it's going to be awkward just lean into that how do you talk to your kids about this you literally just walk up you sit down and say hey I want to talk to you about something and you just let it go is it going to be awkward? Absolutely it is. That's kind of the fun parts. But why is it awkward on you? You know, you're an adult. You know what's going on. You know everything about it. The look on their face of like, wow, that's how the world really uh, operates. It's not really storks. Nope, it's not storks. Not at all. And if you think, oh, they're too young to know and have that conversation, I'll challenge you on that. I'll greatly challenge you on that. You can't, you know, again, we, what's the line my wife used? She, this is why she needs to be here, all the services. She can help me out. Uh, small conversations, small answers, you know. 
the, the last questions. We don't have to give them the whole kit and caboodle, you know, like when they're seven. Hey, what are, how do babies come out of mom? So well, that's why doctors go to, the, go to medical school. They learn how to do that. Okay. Now, that's a different question than if my 17-year-old's asking that. Hopefully he already knows by then, but you understand what I'm saying. But understanding where they're at developmentally, not just in their emotion and their intellect, but even spiritually. Small questions, small answers. It's okay. But we have to be talking with our kids about these things. We have to be engaging with them. We have to know what is going on. And that thought of, oh, I don't know how to talk to my teenager. The leadership line that I think is so great about parenting. To be unclear is unkind. To allow the world to set the standard of what anything is in their life is not the best whatsoever. They're going to hear that. The question is, are they going to hear biblical truth from their parents? Because even though you might not feel like it, a parent is the most influential person in a teenager's life. And I know I'm talking about teenagers, um, because if you raise kids up to that, that's going to be, everybody talks about that's the difficult level. I love it. When our kids were little and people would tell us, oh, just wait until they're teenagers, I love every developmental stage our kids have been in. You know, we look back and we miss when they were real little, but we love where we're at. You know, just watching all four of my kids process life and God and, and just their understanding of who he is, I learn things. They challenge me in things. I love it. But lean into that, that you really do have influence, regardless of they want to say that or not, even in your adult kids. There's, we finally came to the maturity, uh, me and my wife, that any big thing that we do in our life we run past her father. I'm a 30-something-year-old man. I'll let you guess. I buy a house, I'm calling him. I'm going to buy a car, I'm going to call him. Any, like when we were deciding if we were going to move down here, I ran it past. He was one of the first people to know. Why? Because I appreciate his wisdom. I appreciate how he sees life. I don't have to obey him whatsoever, right? It's a father-in-law. <laughs> They're barely wanted. No. In-laws, outlaws, Okay. But I appreciate, yeah, now you got it. I appreciate the wisdom that he brings to my life. And so I'm going to ask him some of those questions. And so to be unclear is to be unkind. So if a child doesn't hear what they are to obey, how are they ever supposed to obey? You got to have these conversations. I, I like the three D's of parenting. This is when I try to me and my kids are going to fight. This is when it's going to go down in these three topics. Disobedience, dishonesty, and disrespect. I just hold to those three. And my kids are okay. They're not perfect. They're definitely not in some PKs. I'll tell you that right now. But they're okay. But those are the three areas that me and them are going to fight. And a lot of times, so let's take the uh, disobedience. Like if we get in the car and my girls are screaming and they're singing Let It Go, or it was Lorax last night. We were singing that song as loud as possible in the car. There was no rule or stipulation to say, hey. So they're singing loud, and so I turn around and say, hey, girls, we're going we're gonna to quiet down. So there, I'm, I'm speaking into their life. Now, if they continue to shrink, that's disobedience. But a lot of times, we immediately will yell at them, but they've never even heard what they're to obey. And so we got to speak in. We, gotta, we have to be the initiators into their life. And this is the hard part. And if this stings, you're welcome because it stings here. Especially with teenagers, you hear a lot of times like, oh, I just want to be their friend. They have plenty of friends. They need parents. As a 
30-something-year-old man. I needed a parent when I was 16, 17, getting to do whatever I wanted to do. I didn't need another friend. I needed somebody to tell me, no, that's not right. Don't do that. Stop it. Thy rod and thy staff come from me. Both sides of that are smacking sheep with it in some form or function. I needed that. And now as a 30-something-year-old man looking back, it hurts. Did you not love me enough to say no? But the problem with disciplining is the reason we don't discipline our kids is because we have to be disciplined ourselves to discipline them. Like knowing I'm going to go into this conversation and he or she is going to get mad at me and it's going to cause some tension here or I could just let it go and everything would be fine. But that's, that's not what Jesus calls to do. We're called to be peacemakers, not peace keepers. So even as a parent, I can't just put my head in the sand and hope, oh, uh, they'll grow out of it. They'll No. And then a key thing that Ashley always reminds me, um, if there's an issue, right, does this affect their salvation or sanctification, and will it matter in 20 years? No, but I want to fight with them, okay? <laughs> and I struggle with that sometimes. And some, I've, I've heard the parenting thing, oh, you have to pick your battles. I'm a general. I'm going to win every battle. And I'll fight them. But in really honesty, asking, does it affect their salvation? Does it affect their sanctification? And will it matter in 20 years? How important is the issue? But lean into your kids. And kids, I'm telling you right now, as teenagers, as some young ones we have over here, as some really young ones we got over here, you hate it. I'm, a, I'm just going to be honest. It's not fun. Parents feeling strict and da 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 da. At 37, you'll absolutely love it and you'll appreciate it. And you will look at your parents and, with tears in your eyes saying, Thank you. Thank you for standing in the gap between the world and leading me appropriately. And so lean, lean into it, trust. But now, fathers, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And you're probably thinking, well, where's the mothers at in this? I think they're fighting the same struggle in their culture that we're fighting today. Where are dads at? Some stats I referenced last week. 63% of youth suicide, 90% of youth homelessness, 71% of high school dropouts, 80% of youth in prison all come from single mother homes. And I am not blaming the mother. I absolutely believe that the family unit biblically has been attacked by removing the father. Why? Because that is God's arrangement. It was a spiritual attack to try to remove dads out of the home. Nothing, nothing anything else. I believe it's absolutely a spiritual attack. And so fathers, uh, we matter. Not that moms don't. But fathers, we matter. And what I love about Scripture, like when we talk about fathers, go into Matthew 6 with the disciples' prayer. Not the Lord's prayer. The Lord knew how to pray. The disciples were the ones asking to pray. They said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And, the, and, and the, you could chew on this for years. Jesus, the Son of God, says, our Father. He doesn't say my Father. He doesn't say your Father. He says, our Father. 
Like those two words right there, you could have a whole sermon series that the Son of God says, our Father. And so earthly fathers, we are tasked with representing our heavenly Father. So dads, we absolutely play a role in our child's understanding of who God is. For the good and for the bad. For the positive and for the negative. We absolutely play a role in our child's understanding of who God is. And I struggled with that. Growing up in a single mother home. And now as 37 and looking back and understanding the full context of that, one of the most saving graces for me, and it has helped me uh, extend full forgiveness, as I absolutely believe my parents did the best that they could. And when I hear and see what they grew up in and I understand what was going on in their lives right then and there when they were having us, I get it. I have no illness, bitterness to my mom or my dad. My dad might be tuned on right now. Good morning, Dad, if you're here. He watches online all the time. And he loves to say, oh, Pastor Nick, his, his dad's watching live from work or wherever it is. I have no ill feelings whatsoever. But there is still a struggle and still a call for us to lean into as dads representing the Father And so the challenge is, let's represent him well. Why? Because God takes his character, God takes his nature very seriously. And so we need to represent him well. That I want my kids to see me and understand, well, why is dad like that? Where where does this unconditional love for me come from? Well, that comes from God. And I have to remind my kids all the time, like, my love for you, unconditional. Now, your obedience and disobedience to me, oh, absolutely, that's going to vary. Even in obedience, I love you. Even in disobedience, I love you. Because a lot of times I think they think it goes like this. Oh, I have to do really good so my dad will love me. No. I mean, I like you a little bit more. But you're my son. You're my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And so the call upon us dads, do not provoke your kids to anger. Don't arouse anger in them. Don't irritate them. But isn't it fun though at times, right? I was a little brother. And so when I had a son, ha ha, revenge. I'm not touching you. I'm not, you know, doing all the things that my brother used to do to me. Now I get to do to him. But we're not to provoke our kids to anger, to irritate them, to be overbearing in our rules that if we lay such heavy burdens upon our kids that they, they struggle with trying to understand how can I even follow the rules that dad has on me and, and that's going to break their spirits, right? So fathers, do we ever regret words and actions, things that we've said and done in anger? Absolutely. Why would we want to stir this up in our kids? Why would we want to cause the same issues in them? That's one of the struggles that I have in my kids is when I see myself in them and not the good parts. When I see my struggles in them, when I see my failings in them, when I see my weaknesses in them, it's like, don't be like me. Be like your mom. Okay, don't be like her either. Know what? But this is the struggle that we have because again, because they are from us, there are going to be those things that they pick up the same struggles that we have. But don't break their spirits. Don't discourage them. Don't make it feel like that they can't live up to your rules and it's an impossibility. That word discourage, breaking their spirits, means to emotionally, this is, this is heavy, to emotionally traumatize 
to the point that their sense of self-worth is diminished. That if we put such burdens on our kids that they can't live this out and please us as is pleasing to the Lord, their self-worth drops. And so understand the connection that our expression of love and care, our expression of our love and care, meaning we can't just say, oh, you know I love you. Does your kid really know that? Just like we talked about last week within marriage, what we say, what we think, what we say, what they hear, all three different things. Have the honest conversation with your kids. Do I provoke you to anger? Do you know that I love you? Well, I know that. No, no, no. Do you see that expression? Could our parents, a parent's expression of love and care, absolutely connected to a child's view of their own worth and value? It's absolutely connected. And so how are we expressing our love, our care for our kids? Are we provoking them to anger? Are we leading? Are we guiding? Are we pouring into them? Because this is the hard part as fathers. Every father is sacrificing something in the pursuit of loving something else. Every father is sacrificing something in pursuit of loving something else. So you remember Ferris Bueller, that theological depth of a movie that we had? Remember his good friend Cameron that was just very melodramatic that thought he was dying because he had a runny nose and, you know, the recordings? I love that movie. What does dad have in the garage? A Ferrari. And I love the scene where at the end and they're trying to uh, uh, reverse the miles off of it, which you might be laughing at, but when you're like 17, 18, that's a logical thought. You know, if you go forward, adds miles, you go in reverse, takes them off. Okay, I understand that. I probably would have been the same way. And it's this, they got the brick on the gas pedal and it's jacked up and he's just talking about this car. And what does he say? My dad loves this car more than life itself that he's looking at his car and he's looking at his own worth and value. And in his mind and his heart, it's made up. My dad loves the car more than me. And so he starts kicking it. And that thing tips and goes right out that back window of his garage. Now, if your garage is covered in windows, okay, you deserve to have your Ferrari just taken off into the ditch. Okay, can I just say that? But every father is sacrificing something in pursuit of something else. Whatever we say yes to, we're saying no to something else. Even our heavenly father sacrificed something in pursuit of something else. That our heavenly father sacrificed his son. Why? In pursuit of us. He saw Jesus and he saw us. And he said, worth it. And so dads, we need to look at our life. And it doesn't matter if we got the little ones. It doesn't matter if we have adult children. They might not even be here with us right now today, sitting in service. But we look at them and we look at whatever else is in our life that is absolutely going to try to conflict and take our time and pull us away and distract us from being parents. Make sure you're sacrificing the right things. And as we're talking about a father's sacrifice and love, it's Communion Sunday. Didn't plan it that way, it just happened. But our Heavenly Father, again, saw the sin of the world, 
saw his creation plagued by that sin, and we have no ability of our own to save ourselves. He looks at Jesus, and he looked at you, and he said, you are worth it. And so we have the call on us as dads to represent our heavenly father well. And as we are going to get up and we're going to take the communion elements, be reminded, yes, of what Jesus gave up for us, but be reminded of what the Father sacrificed for you. Because even talking about last week in the marriage, talking about today within families, always put it in the context of what? Go clear back to the beginning of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ through faith. What is the motivation as husbands and wives that I've been raised with Christ? I am seated with him. My life is hidden with Christ. What is my call as a child that I've been raised with Christ, seated with him, and my life is hidden with him? And what is my call as a parent that I've been raised with Christ, seated with him, and my life is hidden with him, that he is my life? So even as we take these communion elements, It's the call and the encouragement on us to love like the Father. We will not forsake what Jesus calls us to give up. Our depth of faith only comes from dependence on Jesus. Our depth of faith, our maturity, that completeness only comes with our dependence on Jesus. And so this rich young man walks away. And Jesus turns to his disciples. He has a little conversation talking about, all right, let's talk about this. This, Talk about rich men entering the kingdom. And in verse, what is it, 25, they're greatly astonished when they hear these things that with difficulty, and it's easier for this camel to go through the eye of a needle. And there's all kinds of interpretive things of what this could mean. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, uh, some believe that the eye of the needle was the, like in a gate. They would have, they could open up the full gate when, you know, uh, it was open. But when closing time was there and they would shut that gate, they would still open a little bit that you could still get a, a camel through, but you'd have to take off all the possessions off of the camel so they could squeeze through. That's one interpretive way to see that. Another one is in Greek and Aramaic, the word for camel and rope are actually the same consonants. Uh, The vowels are just slightly different. And so some would say, oh no, that's a transcription error. It really meant a a thick knotted rope. It's easier, you know, for uh, a thick knotted rope to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get in the kingdom. Pick whichever one you like. I want to look at the principle here. And so when he's saying These two verses, it's difficulty for a rich man to enter the kingdom and this easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They're greatly astonished and they're saying, well, then who can be saved then? We're kind of asking ourselves the same question then. What are you trying to say here, pastor? You open with those first statistics and then you read something like that. What are we trying to say? And they're greatly astonished because even in that culture then, and it definitely is influencing our culture now, inside the church is that mentality that if you have much, that was a sign of God's blessing on your life. And if you have little, oh, ye of little faith. It's almost like an early prosperity gospel type mentality. 
And sometimes that's hard and it does infiltrate us. When, when something happened that's good, maybe you get a raise, you get a promotion, it's like, oh, God is just blessing me. Does that mean if you didn't get it, you don't have the blessing of God then? That if somebody doesn't have a high paying kind of job that they don't walk in the blessings of the Lord? If you can't tell my tone and my approach to the prosperity gospel, not a big fan. And I think of Job. And uh, Job 1.21 says that the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. That if he wants to give into your life, or if he wants to take away in your life, he's the one that blesses. And sometimes the greatest blessings that we have are not in what God gives. Some of our greatest blessings are in what God takes away from us. And that's a bold prayer. And when you stand before the Lord and say, Lord, whatever is keeping me from a deeper relationship with you, take that from me. Take that from my hands. I, I don't want anything to do with that. And so they're greatly astonished, thinking who can be saved? And on our own, it's impossible. This rich man can't buy enough, can't do enough, can't nothing. It's impossible on his own, but it's not possible with God. And I don't think it means just because you have a, a, a fat account in a bank somewhere that you can't enter the kingdom of heaven because then we have to answer for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all rich men, David, rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, rich man, Barnabas, rich man, Matthew, we're studying, I don't know if you, Matthew, rich man. Are they not in the kingdom? Or is there something deeper here what's going on? Eternity is not determined by our economic status, but our faith in Jesus. So whatever Jesus has given you in your life has, has more to do with what are you gonna do to honor him with that. For some reason, that's what he trusted you with. I know I will never be a rich man. One, I'm not smart enough. <laughs> I, my wife barely trusts me with $5. I haven't seen a 20 in years. She don't trust me. The Lord trusts me more than she trusts me, right? Because she knows what I'll just spend it on. McRib, no. <laughs> Somebody emailed me, what's the fascination with the McRib? I don't even know. But for some reason, God has trusted us with this. And I know what God cannot trust me with. Because if I was gonna be blessed financially, I would probably be on a highway to hell real fast, real quick, and I would do nothing. You know, you say that to act spiritual. Oh, if I won the lottery, I would do so much kingdom impact. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. I don't trust myself with it, and I know the Lord doesn't trust me with it. And so Jesus, at the very end, he addresses his disciples specifically, and then he turns to everyone generally. And he's showing that in kingdom living, in kingdom living, to receive is to leave everything that we put our hope in above Jesus. That if you really want to receive, because Peter's asking that question, what about us? We've left everything. What are we going to have? Me is what Jesus says. You have me. What greater thing could there be? And so if we want to receive, even in this life, this kingdom living, what does that mean? To leave it all. Does that mean go and sell everything? Some of you might be. Does that mean completely changing jobs? Some of you, that might be. Or you might be like Zacchaeus, go right back into your job. 
but your identity is not in your position, your hope, the power that you have. All of those things are just a platform to make a kingdom impact. So the question isn't, how much do I have to give up to be a follower of Jesus? It's kind of the same question when we ask, like, how close to sin can I get without falling off? You know, wrong question. But what am I willing to keep that risks sabotaging my relationship with Jesus? Look at your life. Look at the things that you have. Let it be possessions. Let it be position. Let it be everything that encompasses your life. What am I willing to keep that is at risk of sabotaging my life with Jesus? That's what you need to give up. That's a bold prayer. And I believe we have a bold God that'll answer that bold prayer. It's gonna look different for all of us. And it's not a New Year's resolution, but a commitment to the Lord to say, I want to walk as close as I can with you. And whatever would cause a hindrance in that, take it from me. And I'm gonna walk away. Are you willing to surrender and submit your life to that kind of walk with Jesus? Father, we love you. We trust you. Even when we don't wanna trust you, Lord, I pray that we would step out in faith, knowing that whatever you lead and guide, whatever you call from our life to walk away from, to give up, to let go of, let your will be done in our life, knowing that it is better than anything that we could do of our own. So identify in every one of our hearts and our minds what that is. And call us, fill us with your Holy Spirit, draw us to you, call us into a deeper walk with you. Knowing that if we're in your will, walking with you, hand in hand, that is the blessings that we are looking for in our life. Give us that kind of faith, Lord. And continue to lead us individually, lead us and guide us as a church that we would make an impact in this kingdom for your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...